Dr. David Katz has spent much of his career trying to prevent illness. He is the founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Initiative, the founder and president of the True Health Initiative, and the founder and CEO of Diet ID. His March 20th op-ed in the New York Times, entitled, Is Our Fight Against Coronavirus Worse Than the Disease?, kicked off a national discussion about the country's response. He discusses whether it might have been more prudent to focus on isolating those over 65 and those who are immunosuppressed rather than the entire population. Let's listen in. Thank you so much. Uh, lovely introduction, and um, I, I look forward to, to new relationships and friendships in the aftermath of, of all this. Uh, you know, part of the beauty of the social distancing is I think we're finding our way to new relationships. And, you know, I, I fully endorse the, the strength in unity, even as we practice social distancing. So lovely words, I appreciate them very much. So the, the, the basic proposition here from the start is that there is more than one way for pandemic contagion. And uh, just by, by way of background about me, I actually stepped down from my role at Yale last October after 29 years uh, to, to run my own startup company, which I think can make major public health contributions. But I'm board certified in preventive medicine, public health, trained in epidemiology. My focus preferentially over the years has been on lifestyle and especially nutrition. But, you know, not because I care more about food than you do. Uh, we all care about food. But because my job has always been be where the action is to do the most possible to add years to lives, add life to years. And over the last decade, also focus on saving the planet. And a preferential focus on lifestyle nutrition uh, has made sense in, in both of those areas. There was an op-ed in the New York Times in August of last year uh, August 26th, to be exact, by Darius Mozafarian, who is dean at the Friedman School of Nutrition at Tufts, and Dan Glickman, former Secretary of Agriculture. And that op-ed was entitled, Our Food is Killing Too Many of Us. And they cite the literature noting that diet is the single leading cause of premature death in the country. So th the way I view my pivot, if you will, from a focus all the time on diet and lifestyle to speaking out so loudly uh, about the pandemic is that my focus has been on saving lives always. And, you know, you can think of that as being a, a firefighter and okay, yes, I live in the city. And if the woods catch fire, you're right. I, you know, I'm not necessarily always dealing with forest fires, but my colleagues there can call me in. I know how to put out fires. So it's really all the same thinking. Um, you know, what do you need to do with a given threat at the population level to minimize harm? That was my interest. That was my motivation. And as I watched the burgeoning data from across the oceans, in particular China, South Korea, it was apparent very early on that COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, depending which nomenclature you prefer, was not an equal opportunity scourge, that the, the population experience with this contagion was revealing from the beginning fairly massive risk differentials. In other words, uh, a large segment of the population seems to be at extremely low risk of severe infection, needing a hospital bed, being at risk of uh, winding up on a ventilator or being at risk of death, extremely low risk. In fact, risk so low, it is very familiar and much like the risk of seasonal flu or, or other things we certainly don't shut society down for. A certain segment of the population, however, notably, uh, those over 70 and those with major prior chronic illness, and in particular, those with both. So people over 70 with heart disease, diabetes, the highest risk group. Uh, but people over 70 are at markedly elevated risk, whatever their prior health, and people with major chronic illness like heart disease, diabetes, are at markedly increased risk, whatever their age. But people with neither are, are clearly at much reduced risk, and people with either are at much increased risk. And so the question I, I thought to ask initially was, should we be thinking about vertical interdiction? In other words, a, 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 an approach to interdiction, preventing 
people from contacting the virus that's predicated on risk tiers. If a certain segment of the population can afford to be exposed to this thing, because it'll actually harm them more to be laid off or you know, basically shut down society than exposure to the virus would harm them, then they should stay out in the world. And if there's a group we can identify at much higher risk of getting severely ill, overwhelming the medical system, let's protect them. And in particular, as a, as a nation ill-prepared to deal with the pandemic, despite those of us in public health ranting about this for years, Bill Gates was not the only one to rant about this. I, I checked my own inventory and I was ranting about this in columns 15 years ago. Everybody who's anybody in public health has been warning a pandemic is coming. We were forewarned, we were not forearmed. If anything, we've been decommissioning all the federal assets that could have helped us respond artfully to a pandemic. So given the fact that we have few resources, might we better deploy them to preferentially protect that segment of the population most in need than try to protect everybody in a population of 330 million people? Those were among my early concerns. There's another issue here. It took a while to get my column into the New York Times. Uh, I don't know if any of you has tried that, but you have to run a gauntlet. So you send it in, you wait three days before you hear anything. Then you hear back, we think we're interested, and then another two days go by. Then you get a marked up version back that basically says, we love it, we wanna run it, rewrite it from scratch. Then you rewrite it from scratch and another couple of days go by. Then you do fact checking. And as the days go by there, you correct the facts and they're anachronistic because basically the data have moved on. Okay, but you know, yeah, this is all correct as of two days ago, the pandemic's moving fast, it's all wrong. It took about 10 days to get this thing into the New York Times. So I actually wrote it on or about March 10th. And at that time, we had not yet sent the nation's college students back home. We had not yet shut down everything in major cities, laid off a bunch of young people and said, pack up, go home to your families. So I was looking at the prospect of that and wondering when we send hundreds of thousands of mostly healthy young college students back home to their families, might we not inoculate coronavirus into millions of households? And by the way, might it be based on the data from South Korea, the data from China, and at that time, early data from Germany, Iceland, which are now much better, might it be that these college students you know, are at extremely low risk of severe infection? They could do perfectly well staying on a college campus. You know, Maybe a few of them will need extra service in the college clinic. Maybe we put up a tent on the green you know, to service any uh, uh, excess demand. But the worst thing to do is not test them, not even take their temperature, and send them all home to their 50-something parents who can much less afford to get this thing. And in multi-generational homes, maybe send them home to their 70 or 80 something grandparents who can least afford to get this thing. So at the time I wrote this initially, that was still in play. And I, I was trying to get involved in, in the decision-making at that level and say, wait a minute, stop, think, be careful. The risks are very variable here. By the time it ran in the times that decision had been made. To the best of my knowledge, by the way, I've had uh, COVID-19. I can't say for sure because when I finally managed to get a test, I was about 10 days into what has proven to be about a 20-day illness uh, and my nasal swab came back negative. Uh, now hearing that if you test late, you actually are likely to have a false negative because you're not shedding the virus, but you still have symptoms. I don't know. I, but you know, as a physician who had a constellation of symptoms, I can't attribute to anything else. Pretty sure I had it. Um, I'm now looking into getting antibody tests, but if I had it, uh, my likely route of exposure was my three adult children sent home under our so-called policies from universities in Boston and shuttered work in New York City. Now, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have asked everybody to socially isolate, but the idea that we might have been more thoughtful, more methodical, taken a minute to say, wait a minute, let's be careful about how we mix risk groups here. Alternatively, and, and I fully respect that there's an elegant choreography involved in partitioning a population and saying we have to do this for the high risk and this for the low risk. Maybe there was just no way for us to do that initially. Maybe that was just too heavy a lift. Maybe you need a nation that takes public health seriously before there's a crisis 
to be that artful. Maybe you need a robust public health system, which in this country we tend not to have because we're rather penurious when it comes to public health until we're up to our eyeballs in a crisis. So maybe we simply lack the wherewithal to exercise an artful, vertical interdiction, risk-based approach from the start. That's fine. I didn't say we had to. What I said was we need to think about getting there one way or another. And so the initial phase, interdiction for all, that might have been the best we could do. Everybody away from everybody, best we can. But now, while doing that, we need clear indications that we are out there gathering data to say who has this and is asymptomatic. Who has this and barely has symptoms? Who had this, got over it, maybe didn't even know, and already has antibodies? And how do those numbers translate into who is likely to need a hospital bed, who is likely to get severely sick, and who is at risk of dying? Because if we corroborate with our homegrown data what we've seen from all other countries, that there are these massive risk differentials, then we can think about moving to a phase two. Uh, I've, I've coined a term, the Sirlocky, selective early returners to life as we knew it. And the idea would be, you know, we basically gather data while we're all sheltering in place, social distancing, and by the way, wearing masks when we go out, and we can turn back to that in the Q&A, but I, I do support that idea. Uh, we can collect the data we need to do risk stratification and transition to a next phase. And the next phase would be those at low risk return to the world. What are the advantages? Well, my initial motivation was the fact, again, that there's more than one way for this pandemic to devastate health and take lives. One is the obvious. You get severely sick with coronavirus, you wind up in the ICU on a ventilator, and the best medical effort fails to save you. And that's terrible. But the other is you're among the now nearly 10 million uh, who are out of work. You have food insecurity. You have hunger, depression, anxiety desperation, indigence, interrupted supply chains, disruption of goods and services, and maybe you're hunkering in a place where you're at risk of domestic violence, uh, addiction, suicide. And before we ever had coronavirus, this constellation of factors, income, education, location, access to services, goods, um, food security, uh, these were bundled under the rubric social determinants of health, and collectively, they exert an absolutely massive influence on all the stuff that happens to us. Uh, massive influence on the rate of mortality, massive influence on, on the rate of serious disease. Now, the only difference between social determinants of health and the direct effects of coronavirus are that the virus will kill you now, and the social determinants unraveling they kill you a bit later, but not that much later. And frankly, any way this devastates health or takes lives is bad. And any way we prevent that is good. So the early thinking I had was we need to consider both. If we shut down the whole economy, if we essentially turn off society as we knew it before, there will be a devastating reverberation of effects mediated by social determinants and a massive toll in casualties. I am a humanist and a public health physician. I am not an economist. I was never thinking about lives versus dollars. It was never even a remote idea for me. It's lives versus lives. And the issue was, how do we minimize the total harm to people? The simple fact is you cannot unbundle a functioning economy from health effects. And the bridge between the two is the social determinants of health. So what we've been working on since is modeling to figure out the path to total harm minimization. I've been privileged in the aftermath of, of my column in the New York Times, and then much more so when Tom Friedman channeled my column in his, of being contacted by a who's who from around the world, you know, including several governors and leaders from states throughout the, the country, but also heads of state um, in other countries. But particularly enlightening and edifying for me, a who's who among the leading lights in, in global mathematical risk modeling from places like MIT and Carnegie Mellon and other countries, and some brilliant modelers from Israel. Um, and I've pulled them all together. I said, guys, you know, frankly, you're all punching above my weight grade. Let me introduce you to one another. I'll, you'll do your thing and I'll, I'll watch and learn. Uh, we've actually published uh, all of these risk models online. 
um, at my 501c3, the True Health Initiative. So everybody listening can go to truehealthinitiative.org, click on the COVID page, and you'll get uh, direct um, links to all of these, these risk models. We did, uh, working with um, an expert at MIT, we did what we call kind of a workaround model where you can start to make informed policy decisions about vertical or risk-based interdiction, even in the absence of really good data. And then we have a compendium of models and high-level thinking about the data we need and, and what could inform um, a, an artful approach that minimizes total harm, short-term, intermediate-term. One final thing to say about all this, because it's, uh, it's, it's really important, it's easily misrepresented or overlooked completely, and it's really quite personal. So I'll frame it personally and, and tell you about my mother. My mother's 80, reasonably good health. She's had some health issues just over the last couple of years. Most, I, I would have said great health until quite recently, but last couple of years have been a bit rough. But doesn't really matter. She's 80 she's in the very high risk for severe coronavirus infection. Uh, if she gets this thing, it could kill her, no question about it. So we've got to keep her away from it. So she and my dad, who's also 80 and quite healthy, uh, are sheltering, you know, not just from the world in general, but from us. Uh, you know, we, we used to see my parents weekly. We haven't seen them since this started. My folks have seven grandchildren. Uh, they used to visit them routinely. That's sort of their, you know, their, their social activity now gone. But the question is, until when? So my 80-year-old mother has two concerns, and it's not clear which is the greater of the two. One is she could get coronavirus and die and really doesn't want that to happen. But the other, and you know, she tells me as she cries through the conversation that this may be the greater of the two, is that absent some plan to get us back to normalcy, she could die of something else before ever again being allowed to hug her grandchildren die while sheltering in place, die in social isolation. And she finds that completely horrifying. So what my mother needs and frankly deserves is some plan for a plan back to the all clear. Pretty much what we've gotten to date is along the lines of, you know, uh, leaving aside the ping pong match of, you know, diametrically opposed governance by Twitter feed, um, you know, kind of what we've gotten is like hunker in place, uh, social distancing, shelter in place, um, and, uh, you know, hang in there with your anxiety, uncertainty, doubt, and dread, uh, and we're going to flatten the curve. Until when? Well, you really haven't heard anything on that topic. It sounds like, you know, maybe until we have a vaccine. Well, an effective vaccine is optimistically 18 months away. And if things don't go quite so well, nobody knows. I mean, after all, we've been trying to make a vaccine for HIV for 30 years and haven't succeeded yet. No one seems to think that SARS-CoV-2 is going to be that hard, but nobody knows how easy it's going to be either. So 18 months is optimistic. The idea of sheltering in place when you're 80 years old for a year and a half before you have any hope of once again hugging your grandchildren is devastation. Uh, and a lot of people will die of other causes before ever again hugging their families. Is there an alternative? Yes, there is. The alternative is herd immunity. So the idea there, again, is you identify those for whom the risk of severe coronavirus infection is really not much higher than the risk of seasonal flu turning into uh, hospitalization. And you say you are the Sirlocky, the selective early returners to life as we knew it. You can go further, and we do this, by the way, and again, this is not my wheelhouse, but some of the um, modelers that I've been working with are economists. You can juxtapose what you know about risk differentials in the population through the lens of public health with what you know about vital needs in the economy uh, in terms of what sectors most need to be restored for us to have supply chains, essential goods and services. And you can kind of make a Venn diagram where you say, you know, the people who can most safely return to the world and the portion of the world that most needs to be populated with a workforce, let's start there. And then the idea is you monitor as you go. You don't trust your models, you verify, or rather you do trust them, but you verify. On the fly, you adjust if you need to, if you've made any mistakes, if some people you thought were in the low-risk group or at higher risk because of something you overlooked, some condition they may have that wasn't on your list, you adjust, you protect everybody that needs protection. You deploy the services you have, whether it's personal protective equipment, 
or home delivery of food or uh, screened healthcare professionals known to be COVID negative or anything else you might do, you, you deploy that preferentially to those most in need. So you concentrate resources where they can do the most good. You reboot the economy, you restore jobs, uh, you start to um, salvage people's 401ks, because that's another thing, you know, it's painful. You're 80 years old, you've worked hard for your lifetime, and you've just watched your entire life savings disappear. That's pretty concerning for people too, and I think legitimately so. Um, so a vertical approach to risk interdiction provides preferential protection of those who need it, allows the Sirlaki to return to the world and reboot society as we knew it before, but it also fosters the development of herd immunity. People can afford to get this and get over it, which I believe I've done. Um, and by the way, I would not have come up in the lowest risk group on 57. It's pretty clear that one of the early elevations in risk starts at about age 50. So the lowest risk would be people below 50 and in, in perfectly good health. I would be in the next risk here, perfectly good health, but 57. But, you know, if I got it, I got it. It's not because of anybody's plan. Um, but then, you know, that group basically gets exposed. We monitor them for antibodies. And we're able to demonstrate over time that we have reached about 60% immunity in the population and near zero viral transmission. And that becomes the all clear for everybody who's still sheltering in place. And again, we may get there in two phases, three phases, five phases, seven phases. You know, how, how this is handled in its details really ought to be deferred to the CDC, the NIH, other federal authorities who are overseeing groups of modelers and an influx of data. We should be gathering representative random sample data throughout the United States. Now, we're trying, many are trying, but it really ought to have been a federal effort from the start. Uh, again, it's being done in Iceland, Germany, South Korea. We're way behind and racing to catch up. New York State is, is currently catching up probably better than anybody. And that really is the value proposition. So the goal here is total harm minimization. I continue to believe, as I believed back in the, you know, several lifetimes ago when I wrote my op-ed, um, because in this pandemic, I think every day is a year and every week is a decade. Uh, so those lifetimes ago when I wrote this, uh, I believe we had to think about social determinants and the direct effects of, of infection to minimize total harms. Here we are awash in severe coronavirus cases and 10 million unemployed people later. I continue to believe that's true. So I have a question, and I apologize if I missed this, but are any government officials uh, paying attention to your proposal? And thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Um, they are. Uh, so I can't recall now whether it was after m my piece ran or more likely after Tom Friedman's piece ran, because, you know, <laughs> Tom, Tom took my call and ran it up a very high flagpole, let's face it. Uh, I got a call from the governor of Florida. Uh, and after we spoke for the better part of an hour, he told me he was going the next day to the White House and, and share those ideas, which I think, you know, sadly may have translated into a tweet, let's send everybody back to the workforce by Easter, which was never my proposal. Uh, but then I had a, a call from the governor of New York, and um, we have actually been interacting ever since. Um, governor Cuomo has a coronavirus task force. I've been in touch with the commissioner of health in New York and fairly extensive interactions there. Um, several state legislators as well, and um, the state epidemiologist here in Connecticut. Uh, I've also been contacted by the uh, chief policy advisor to the president of Columbia, not the university, the country. Uh, Columbia has a very low level of cases currently. They did highly effective horizontal interdiction initially, so immediately shelter in place, social distancing. And their caseload is very low. But the, the president of Columbia wonders, you know, can I, can I keep the people who need to be kept away from this safe and restore economic activity? So we had a lengthy conversation. We've shared with them the risk modeling um, via the, uh, the cabinet. Uh, the question was relayed to us, do you have detailed models on the social determinants? And we shared one of my colleagues, uh, Steve Wolf, who was also quoted in um, Tom Friedman's column. He's a, an expert in social determinants of health at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, Steve did promptly shared a whole batch of articles on how unemployment and, and sort of you know, disruption of the economy translates downstream into adverse health effects. Nobody yet has modeling of 
the reverberations through social determinants specific to this pandemic because it's all too, too, too real time. But we're racing to catch up and I think that can be done. Um, so yes, people are listening. The other thing I, I want to say, um, if, if you don't know the name Mike Osterholm, you should. Um, Dr. Michael Osterholm at the University of Minnesota. Because, you know, again, I'm a preventive medicine specialist. I'm trained in epidemiology. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm vaguely qualified to be sharing my opinions on the coronavirus pandemic more than most people, but much less than Mike. <laughs> so Mike Osterholm is arguably, you know, the nation's leading expert in pandemic response. Uh, I mean, his whole career is about pandemic response. Um, and he's saying exactly the same thing I am. You know, so I wrote in the New York Times and, and, you know, it's not like Mike got the idea from me. You know, the piece that he published in the Washington Post two days later was obviously in the queue long before mine saw daylight. So, it just, you know, along parallel tracks, we're saying exactly the same thing. So here's someone whose total focus is on pandemic response, infectious disease. And he is also saying the devastation here via social determinants of health may ultimately swamp the toll directly attributable to the virus. And people are listening to him as well. So, you know, I, I think the word has certainly gotten around. What we now need to focus on, especially here in the States, but again, we sort of have governance by Twitter. And this is the most complicated public health crisis in living memory and maybe the history of modern society. It requires nuance. You know, we, we've got to be prepared to establish the teams of data gatherers, data analysts, people willing to listen to the scientists, and then the careful articulation of all of that interpreted data into nuanced policy. This is so not conducive to governance by Twitter. So, you know, I'm hoping we can get there in this country, uh, but, but there's clear interest at the state level and there's clear interest at the level of foreign governance. They're, they're right, definitely last question. This approach was initially um, uh, seriously discussed and even partially implemented in the UK. And then the Imperial College came out with their model that showed that it was going to lead to millions of deaths, and they abruptly changed course. So who was, you know, were they on the right track in your estimation, and then they lost their nerve? So no, I'm I'm looking at the Game of Thrones folks behind you, by the way. But those those are the days, and that you're muted now. Um, anyway, I, I, actually, I actually read them all. Did you? And I, I I have to confess, I just watched the show, but uh, fan just the same. So uh, they didn't do this. So here's the thing. Um, again, it, it's it sadly you know in modern pop culture, what masquerades as discourse is, you know, basically an idea runs through the meat grinder of the Twitterati and, you know, turns into an extreme caricature of itself. And an opposing idea does the same and turns into an extreme caricature of itself. And then the debate is everybody locked in their homes indefinitely versus everybody out to the world to fill up the churches by Easter. And, you know, there's nothing that makes any sense in between. The modeling in the UK was, in my view, mostly about an unnuanced, somewhat you know, caricaturized idea of we don't shelter anybody in place. We basically let the population ride this out. And I don't think they're wrong about the casualty toll if you know, everybody's grandparents are going to be exposed to this virus. It's a really bad actor in people over 70 especially in people over 80 and in people with heart disease or diabetes. They didn't model, what if we identify, so again, the, the, the critical issue to model that they didn't model at all was an approach that was neither everybody out into the world or everybody social distance to flatten the curve, but what if we identify who's at risk of severe infection, who's not? This group, we do everything necessary to keep them the hell away from this thing, and only this group goes out into the world. It wasn't modeled. That's what we're trying to model now. Um, but I think populating that gap in between the two extremes is absolutely crucial. The other thing that they didn't model at all, and you know, again, this, this is really the argument that, that I've been making right along. It's the argument that Mike Osterholm has been making right along, is that there's more than one way for this to kill people. So you know, they, they looked at the toll from the infection. They didn't look, if we lock everybody in place for 18 months, 
what is the casualty toll as a result of social determinants of health that wasn't in their model either. So again, you know, really important work. We didn't ignore it. Um, there are many of the risk modelers I'm working with who can interpret it far better than I. But what they all agree is they didn't start out asking the right question. They were sort of dealing with Boris Johnson's either or choice at the extremes. There's a subtlety in the middle. I think that's most promising. And uh, just one follow on and then I'll yeah. let other people ask the question. Uh, it sounds to me like what you're really saying is that they let the the epidemiologists do the modeling when in fact you really need social welfare economists doing the modeling who can tote up those 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 complete social costs and not just the immediate medical costs i think it takes a village both you know again i think i think we model the direct effects of the pandemic i think we model the timeline you know again the other issue is immediacy we're all hearing about people in the ICU with this right now, you know, whereas the suicides and the homicides and, and the addictions will be a little bit downstream, right? So we, we need to be thinking about immediate toll, near-term toll, longer-term toll, infection versus economic collapse. Um, and, you know, where do lines cross to show us the point of total harm minimization? What are the relevant time horizons? I think both. Right. And, and again, if I ran the zoo, I'd be saying, OK, guys, look, we, we bungled any opportunity here to keep everybody away from this virus. Um, and we bungled any opportunity to even more elegantly keep the high risk away from the virus. So right now we're awash in it. Our critical needs are make sure people who need hospital beds get them, make sure people who need protective equipment get that, make sure people who need a ventilator can get it. And, and frankly, everybody's so caught up in that. It, it, you know, so I, I told you Governor Cuomo was listening. He was listening. I think it's harder for him to listen now because he's scrambling to source ventilators, quite frankly, right? So right now we're dealing with the, this mayhem. But while, while those who have to deal with the immediacy of this do that, I want teams of people working on every form of the risk analysis, the direct effects of the virus, the social determinants of health, I want ideas about total risk minimization over time horizons. I want to hear what gets us to an all clear and when, most safely, minimal total harms done. And I want you know a, a group of 400 people with MPHs, each responsible for three or four pages of the policy manual, thinking through every permutation of this. If we're going to protect the high-risk people, I want to be thinking about every variant on the theme of high-risk people. Older people living with their grandchildren, older people living with their adult children, older people who are in multi-generational homes. Do we unbundle them and send some out and not let them go back? Or, you know, I want to be working through the permutations. I want a whiteboard until the damn thing is, you know, generating smoke, but we work through every one of these. You know, it's a 1,500-page policy manual. I can't write that right now, but assign 300 people and give them two days, they sure as hell can. All of that should be happening now as we start to prepare for this next phase. Are we doing the data gathering in terms of testing and identifying those that uh, have antibodies that allow us to carry this forward? Well, it depends who we is. I mean, I, I actually just got an email just before uh, our, our webinar uh, with a group from the CDC we spoke to yesterday. Um, so, you know, I, I formerly directed the Prevention Research Center at Yale for 21 years, and there's a national network of PRCs. So we reached out to the CDC as it can, we coordinate maybe through the PRCs. You know, we've got this network. We can get into diverse communities, do representative random sampling. Heard back today that the CDC is sort of overwhelmed and we're, kind, we're already ahead of them, but they really can't help. It was rather disheartening, to be honest. So New York is doing a really good job of getting at data. Um, a lot of groups, uh, grassroots efforts are, are doing a good job. Everybody is trying to figure out the best test kit, which seems to change every day. There's a new one that's better, faster, more sensitive, and so forth. Combining testing for infection and immunity, which is really important, to the best of my knowledge, hasn't been artfully done yet. My wife, who's a PhD in neuroscience, had what I think is a brilliant idea. She was you know, reading on coronavirus, saw that there had been some salivary testing um, published and said, hey, you know, could you possibly use those kits for Ancestry.com or 23andMe? So we have put uh, in direct contact the leadership at both of those companies with the leadership in, in uh, state government New York. And they have all their technical people now trying to figure out, can we do home DNA test kits 
repurposed for testing for an RNA virus. Their concerns are the RNA virus may be less stable than DNA. They're working through it. But then the idea would be we could do a massive mail order campaign. You don't need health workers. You don't need protective equipment. You mail people the kit, they swab, and they mail it back in. It gets processed to check their coronavirus status. We're also trying to figure out, we, again, uh, I'm flattering myself, but scientists involved are trying to determine can that same method potentially be used to assess both infectious status and immunity. Because the more we know about who's already had this and is immune and maybe never even had symptoms, the more we are able to start thinking about a, you know, a transition back to phase normalcy. Um, so we ought to be the federal government. We ought to be, I mean, the coronavirus task force should be telling us, here's our nationwide random sampling data capture here, the test kits we're using, where we are, co- we have a clearinghouse for other groups that want to do sampling. We're recommend, you know, telling them which test kits are best, telling how to test for immunity, telling how to test for infection, and upgrading these methods daily. I haven't heard anything like that. So we isn't who it ought to be, but there's an awful lot of people at the state level uh, and in the private sector trying to fill that void. And more data are coming in every day as a result. Has have you heard from Dr. Fauci or any of the other folks on the committee? I, I have been in touch with Dr. Fauci's uh, chief of staff, uh, so I've not been directly in touch with Dr. Fauci. And you know, we have to consider the difficult position he's in. He's already received poor guy uh, death threats, and you know, for for proposing that the virus may be severe. And, um, you know, I, I think in his difficult position uh, on a rather politicized uh, task force, maybe the best he can do is to continue to remind people how dangerous this is. Uh, I suspect he might like to do something more nuanced, but I, I don't know that, that um, he really has the, the latitude to do it. Um, and the other thing is the poor guy's drinking from a fire hose. Um, I understand his wife is quite concerned about his health. You know, because of the hours he's working and he's been getting three hours of sleep a night. So, you know, getting through to him is, is really tough. Um, we know that the, the basic concept of a risk-based approach has, has reached the White House. So presumably he's aware of it. Um, whatever it is he's thinking about it personally, he's not yet addressed in public. My hope is, and I haven't heard directly, you know, that they are working to pull together the, the data analysis that they can start to prepare for next phase. You know, personally, you know, again, thinking about people like my mother, it would be a source of enormous comfort just to be able to say, here's what we're doing to prepare for the next phase. Even as we tell you for now, shelter in place, social distance, wear a mask, stay the hell away from this dangerous bug. That would be fine. Um, sadly, we're just, we're waiting to hear that there is a plan for a plan. Uh, I think that needs to be fixed. But uh, again, only in direct contact with Dr. Fauci. Dr. Katz, I've listened with absolute fascination to your presentation. And one of the problems that we lay people are having is that even in order to ask questions, uh, we find ourselves having to become instant phony experts in areas where we know almost nothing. That's That's my self description. So let me just put an instant phony experts question to you. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, first of all, I understand that, at least if I understood you cor- correctly in your opening statement, you're not talking about trading off lives for other goods. Your basic metric is a humanistic one where the basic metric at the bottom line is human lives saved. Uh, and in that in, in that respect, uh, here's my question. What little I know about economic history tells me that there is no linear relationship between the state of economic activity on the one hand and the state of individual health collectively measured by mortality statistics and things of that sort. Life expectancy actually went up by four years during the, during the four years from 1929 to 1933, which was the worst economic catastrophe in our country's history. And even if you look at, even if you look at the consequences of recessions on mortality, there's nothing like a linear relationship. So, you know, 
this whole question of the social determinants of health strikes me historically as a complicated one. Now, maybe things have changed, but if they haven't changed, then how can, how can we be so sure that what's going on now is going to, in the economic and social sphere, as opposed to the medical sphere, is going to have a negative effect on human health outcomes? Well, Bill, for a pseudo-expert, quite a sophisticated question. Uh, thank you for the kind words. And I, I certainly agree with you that it's complicated and subtle. So you know, part, part of the, the commentary you made was that it's a complex issue. I think everybody who studies social determinants of health totally agrees. The, you know, in terms of some of the historical references, uh, you know, trained in epidemiology, you know, whether we're talking about coronavirus or historical periods, you know, the, the, the same knee-jerk reflex was the denominator. So, for example, if we talk about life expectancy going up in the 20s or early 30s, compared to what? I mean, after all, it wasn't all that long before we went through World War One and the flu pandemic, and maybe life expectancy had natured, and it had no place to go but up and was going up, you know, maybe there was some um, effect of the Great Depression on risk factors for chronic diseases. You know, I, I don't, I don't presume to know all the answers there, but it sounds like that itself is a complicated data set. We do have extensive work published robustly in the peer-reviewed literature, like the Whitehall study, which looks specifically at disparities in socioeconomics, education, I mean, all the, all the things that you would parameterize when you're talking about social determinants, and the, the, the differentials in terms of almost every important health measure are massive. So the issue here, I think, is that you suddenly create massive disparities. There are obviously going to be some people, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to like what happens to their retirement plan, but they're going to have no issue accessing food and critical goods and services. The issue is what happens to people who are fairly marginal and living hand-to-mouth before? What the hell do they do when they're now unemployed? Um, they're in a long line to try and get unemployment um, benefits. Uh, their local bodega you know, has nothing on the shelf and, and on and on it goes. It becomes pretty obvious that there's a potential calamity brewing there. We've already heard reported in mainstream literature that there's been a surge in domestic violence and a spike in gun sales. And guns are not for shooting coronavirus, as I said earlier, so what exactly are they for? Uh, it's ominous. It's it's an initial step. I don't know that there's yet been a spike in homicides, but you know more people you know feeling desperate and and thinking guns will help them through it is an ominous sign. So again, I you know not being a historian uh, and not having at my fingertips a detailed analysis of exactly what happened epidemiologically during the Great Depression, I, I can't wave away your contention that this is complicated, but I think it returns us back to the issue. What we want to do is gather people who've actually, who are the, the real experts in this, who spent their careers analyzing this, see where the, the, the sensitive elements are, right? Some of this may matter a lot to health. Some of it may matter less. Um, you know, it, it may not be about total economic activity. It may be about specific sectors. It may be about critical supply chains. And all of that can be figured out if you get the right people together in a few weeks. And the idea, I think it would reassure me, I imagine it would reassure you, and it would reassure people like my mother to know that work is being done right now, right? And, you know, and there's, there's a federal mandate to look at the complexities, make sure we don't overreact to anything. You know, maybe the, the case for social determinants is being overstated. And, and if you're an honest scientist, you try really hard not to fall in love with any of your own hypotheses and say, look, I, you know, I've got an idea, it's robust, it makes sense, but it may be wrong. So let's get the best data we can and put it to the empirical test. And, you know, frankly, I like healthy disagreement because it is the gauntlet all worthy ideas should run and survive, and it's the place where bad ideas should go to die. Um, so, you know, I would say those kinds of, of well-considered uh, challenges should be very welcomed by the people who are trying to figure out what exactly is the math here. Well, as the son of a scientist who spent most of his career at Yale, I, uh, I heartily endorse the sentiments that you ended your answer with. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Bill. Goldstein, do you have a question? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, 
So I was just wondering, uh, I think we've all seen the data uh, with some of the hospital, uh, you know, projections in the states and the overcrowding uh, and, you know, peak uh, uh, needs versus uh, beds. And that's with the current, you know, extreme, you know, vertical social distancing. So I'm wondering to some extent whether we're too late for the approach you're recommending today, given that we don't want to make that problem worse, at least in the in the near term, and how that factors into your recommendation, the fact that we're, you know, several weeks later and, you know, the caseloads are, are getting over overburdening in a lot of states. Yeah. So if we're too late, to be clear, we're too late for either form of interdiction, right? Because the idea was if we protect those at high risk of severe infection, we would have avoided overwhelming hospitals. If we had effectively protected everybody, we would have avoided overwhelming hospitals. We'd all be sheltering in place like they are in Colombia. Hardly anybody would have coronavirus. Our hospitals would be fine. We'd just be wondering when the hell can we you know, come out and play again? We didn't do either. We dithered. And again, we sent, you know, hundreds of thousands of college students home to far-flung households without testing them or taking their temperature. So we did worse than did. We, we may have taken a bad problem and made it worse. And you, I'm asking myself the same question. I, I wrote a column on my LinkedIn platform today, uh, choreography in a crashing surf. So my, my coronavirus contempo is, you know, maybe the opportunity to choreograph the elegant steps of interdiction Maybe that came and went, and we didn't do horizontal, and we didn't do vertical. We dithered and you know had competing tweets, and and we let everybody get exposed, and we turned the nation basically into a mixer. Let's take the college students from big campuses, and let's take the young working people from big cities, and send them all over the place back home. Maybe we did that, and if we did that, and everybody's already exposed, and everybody who's sheltering in place is already incubating the coronavirus, we're screwed. Um, I mean, the only good news, and it's pretty bleak good news, is that everybody's exposed. This will be over much sooner, but the casualty count will be high and the hospital experience will be terrible. I hope we're wrong. I hope that hasn't happened. So I hold out the hope that we partly bungled it. We could have done better initially with either approach, either a brisk horizontal interdiction and thinking about a later pivot to vertical interdiction, or again, if, if we had the organizational wherewithal, an initial phase of vertical interdiction. We know who's at high risk, we'll protect them, the rest of the world can stay in the world. But, you know, again, I don't mind if we say, no, we, we were never going to be prepared to do that in phase one, we just knew we wanted to transition to it. But we should have done something to keep people at risk of severe, it was always clear to everybody that a portion of the population was at high risk of severe infection. And keeping them away from, from this germ was important. We didn't do that. So, you know, I'm hoping despite the early mistakes, that a sizable portion of the population has still been kept away. So, you know, again, my 80-year-old parents, so far they both seem fine. They're sheltering at home. I hope there are lots of people like them who are in their home, away from everybody else, and, and healthy, because otherwise they would be in the ICU. So that says we did some good. And then the issue becomes, you know, as we deal with the incredible demand on the medical system now, which we have to do as the top priority, can we identify who's at low risk, who goes back to it? You know, it doesn't really change the, the opportunity. The, you know, the, the issue you raise suggests, well, if we pivot to vertical interdiction, we worsen the current situation. No, we only pivot to vertical interdiction, risk-based interdiction, if in fact there's a low risk group where, you know, the percent that would wind up needing a hospital bed is so vanishingly rare, they will change the demand on the medical system almost not at all. It'll be an anomaly, right? I mean, again, every now and then, an apparently healthy young person gets a severe complication of the flu and winds up in the hospital, but it's an anomaly. For most people, it's just an unpleasant couple of weeks. So that group, though those people returning to the world early, even if more of them get infected, it's not going to affect what's going on in hospitals. Well, that's the idea. But I don't know. It may be too late. I can't tell. Uh, you know, I'm looking on with anxiety, and meanwhile, I'm signing. I, I'm getting emails from my alma mater, Einstein, where I went to medical school, we need help. I just, I just did the initial phase of uh, onboarding uh, and I'm looking at you know, volunteering clinical time. I, I retired from patient care a few years ago, but you know, this is an all hands on deck situation. Um, I don't know. Freda, I see you raised your hand. Okay, yes, um, sorry. I have more of an ask than a question. I actually have a piece coming out in, I think it's the Washington Times, 
making a very similar point to what you made that we are legislators need to start planning and letting the public know what their thoughts are on how yeah. and, and I'm hoping if I send it to you, you can use it to propel your message because you have a lot of good ideas on how this might unfold. Thank you. Happy to share it. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, the, the, the absence of evidence for a plan for a plan, I mean, that, that is, that is an, an absurd appendage of insult to injury as we all suffer through this, right? I mean, we deserve to know that even as we deal with the acute crisis, we are developing a plan, so there will be a plan. It's not going to be like this forever. Absolutely. Davcat7 at gmail.com. D-A-V-K-A-T. Okay, yes, okay. please. And yeah, thank you. I agree. It's important. By the way, just to back up to the previous question, um, if I may, because uh, there's one thing I left out. I mean, we're, we're all worried as, as we see what's happening in hospitals that that's going to be, you know, basically a rolling wave across the country. I, I'm really worried about that. Um, I'm increasingly concerned that we did neither horizontal nor vertical interdiction when we had the chance. But, you know, you, you have that conversation and everybody leaves this webinar and thinks something along the lines of, oh, dear God. Um, I do want to point out, as terrible as this is, the total mortality, and let, let me check the numbers so they're you know, fully up to date, the total mortality from coronavirus uh, in the United States to date over a span of weeks now is under 7,000. That's a big number. It's a bad number. Those are real people. I don't want anything I say you know, to, to mask the fact that that means grieving families. But I think lost in the 24-7 news cycle fixation on this one cause of death is that 8,000 people die in the United States every day of miscellaneous causes before we had a pandemic. We're a population of 330 million, about 1% or close to 3 million people die annually. Most are old and sick, not all obviously, um, but you know we're mortal, we're going to die. And dying when we're old is kind of what's supposed to happen. Um, the deaths from coronavirus are in many cases in addition to deaths that would have happened anyway. And they're obviously highly concentrated in place and time. But there are also deaths that are concentrated in people who are old and sick. And those are people who are at risk of dying before. So the numbers are bad. I don't want anything I say to d diminish the respect we all feel for the pandemic. But I do think there, there's sort of this watching a train wreck in slow motion effect where it feels like, oh my God, oh my God. And there's no perspective on, wait a minute, there's a lot else going on in the world. There are 8 billion people in the world. So far, the total global mortality impact of the pandemic over a span of months is less than 0.1%, considerably less than 0.1% of average global mortality from other causes. And there are many things we pay no attention to that routinely kill vastly more people than coronavirus has. Uh, HIV for one, um, so far influenza for another, but that will change. Uh, malaria, suicides, car crashes. You know, we don't, we don't shut society down because of the levels of car crash mortality or suicide mortality. So there is a case, I think, for some perspective here and, and the notion that this is bad, but people were dying every day before the pandemic, too. Uh, Mike Tritz here. Can you hear me? I can, Mike. Uh, first of all, that was brilliant and very much needed. And vertical is clearly, based on your last comments, vertical is clearly needed because we have to avoid all of the secondary problems that are going to come out of this. So it's, my question is, how do we help get your message through to Congress, to the president? In other words, what can we do to instill that? Well, first of all, thank you. And, you know, honestly, I, I think, um, you know, we, we work our network. So, I, you know, I, the question back to you is, who do you know and who can you reach? If it's a senator uh, or a legislator, you know, again, I, I, my piece was in the New York Times. Tom Friedman's piece was in the New York Times. Uh, we have these risk models assembled at truehealthinitiative.org. And by the way, folks running the show here, um, I trust you'll make the relevant URLs available. Um, I write routinely on my LinkedIn platform. So, you know, the, the lengthier detailed columns that I couldn't put into the New York Times are all there. So pick what's useful uh, and share it with somebody who will listen to you. 
I think if enough of us reach enough others, so, you know, I'm doing everything I can to, to broadcast the message in my world. But, I, you know, I, I think if several legislators from a given state bring the same message to their governor, their governor will start to take it seriously. If several governors bring it to the White House, uh, the federal response will be influenced by that. Um, and, and my hope is, you know, if, if we convey what truly is the nuanced challenge here, we want total harm minimization. And that means restoring some semblance of normal society, even as we protect people at high risk of severe coronavirus infection, you know, it creates a whole new opportunity alternative to the lock everybody in place indefinitely versus send everybody out in the world and let grandma take her chances. And, you know, those, those caricatures have sort of taken over the national dialogue. We need to win back the narrative. Uh, the only uh, suggestion I can make uh, is that in addition to the lengthy things that you're writing, that there be a one-pager with six straight points on it that people can focus on, because people don't read a lot. Uh, I was in the I was in the uh, research business as far as the securities industry is concerned, and anything that went past one page didn't get read. So yeah. I would have a preface that's very short, and then people can continue. But get the highlights on that first page. All right. That's, it's good advice, Mike. You're absolutely right. The, the national attention span is short, and I tend to be loquacious. Um, I'm going to take that specific suggestion back to my team that, that's helping me. Uh, and we, we've got all of the relevant materials assembled at the True Health Initiative, but we'll try to create the, this, sort of this high-page, bulleted you know, manifesto for total harm minimization. It's a really good suggestion. Thank you. I just had uh, one quick question, if I could. Uh, we had a meeting the other day, including somebody from who had been uh, one of the leaders in the healthcare side of the Trump administration, and the following concept was floated, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. And it was simply a full lockdown for 30 days, and we've somewhat started that, but we haven't done it nationwide. And at the end of 25 or 26 days, all of the essential workers in the country would get tested and obviously would be um, locked, locked down for 14 days if they had the virus. And so that, that and, and our borders would be shut for that period of time and for about a month afterwards. So that's an idea that's floating through the White House right now. And I'd just like to know your thoughts about it. I know it's a little bit different from what you're advocating, but as an alternative, what your thoughts about that would be. And this is Lewis. I think it's looking at your phone icon. You didn't say your name. It's, it's Lou. I'm sorry. Yeah. Lou. Okay. Thanks, Lou. Yeah. So it's it's a variant on the theme. I, you know, I I I think it's potentially fine. Uh, I would welcome any plan rather than the absence of a plan that we're now all running with. I I, I don't know that arbitrary deadlines where we stipulate the number of days are as good as data-informed models about you know, who has this already. Um, you know, if we go back to the earlier question, there is the possibility that the United States of America closed the barn door after letting all the horses out, you know, in, in which case, you know, the, the, these timelines are, you know, they're not going to help us much because we're basically just waiting for incubation periods to play out and everybody is exposed and so, you know, I, I think we really need data immediately rather than any arbitrary timeline. We can be finding out immediately who's infected. We can be finding out immediately what the level of immunity is. And we can be using information about the distribution of both infection and antibodies to determine, you know, what is the course of this? I mean, if we were to find a very high prevalence of coronavirus antibodies among people who reported essentially no symptoms, and we might quickly discover that here, as in South Korea, 98 to 99% of all cases are mild. So mild, in fact, that people don't notice that they have it. That's really, really important for the pivot to vertical interdiction and might allow for it to happen sooner. The other concern about, you know, we test people and we isolate them. If the policy is explicitly to try and keep everybody away from the virus for the foreseeable future, and only let people out when we know they're not going to be exposed, we may never establish the necessary herd immunity that really makes the world safe for everybody's grandparents before there's a vaccine. 
But these are all subtleties, frankly. And, you know, if we were to hear there's a federal plan and it's, it's you know, relatively time specific as opposed to clearly data driven, it's still a hell of a lot better than no plan at all. And it, it still is looking to strike a balance between keeping vulnerable people away from this infection, not overwhelming medical systems worse than we already have, and allowing us to restore some semblance of the world as we knew it and reboot the economy. You know, frankly, I, I, I would accept almost any variant on the theme of that over the resounding silence we're all currently dealing with as we shelter in place. There is more than one way for COVID-19 to take lives. One is obvious. You could become ill from the disease and potentially die. But a long-term shutdown of our economy and social isolation could kill people too by causing increased substance abuse and depression and massive unemployment and hunger. So even as many parts of the country endure a necessary lockdown to contain the virus, Dr. Katz stresses the need for America to have a real plan to reopen as soon as possible. Learn more about how No Labels is bringing together a coalition of bipartisan leaders to stop this virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work at nolabels.org. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. Thank you.